I mean, it's never too late to repent. Uh, it's never too late to say, yes, we made a dreadful mistake or we should have communicated that better or something like that. And, and to admit that you've got something wrong. There have been no end of scandals in the past where people have eventually come out and said, yes, I did it. Uh, I was an idiot. And you can, you can, you can find a way back. It's a long way back, mine. You might have to you know, take a long time to get back. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. I am absolutely delighted today because I have been joined by someone who has probably been one of my longest standing friends in business, uh, something of a mentor to me, a very good friend, someone who works with me on my talks, helps me really sharpen them up uh, and get them right, and is an absolute expert in his field, um, frequently appearing on our television screens on various news channels like Sky News, the BBC and others, um, to talk about various topics of interest of the day. And this is a topical discussion. I'm a bit nervous about this one, actually, because we're recording it uh, on the Monday before publication. So a week before uh, we actually go out and release this. And given our topic, anything could have changed in the last week between recording this and you listening to this. And that's just assuming you're listening to this on the day it comes out. Um, so this is a topic that could be out of date incredibly quickly, but at the same time is consistently relevant because, of course, while we might be talking about topical events, the idea is that it's the lessons from them that make the difference. So my guest is, is Alan Stevens, and Alan is an expert on reputation. He's a, a media coach, so he works with senior leaders on how to manage the media um, and, and how to make the most of their appearances in in print or on, on, on television and radio. Uh, and he also um, works with a number of organisations on crisis management, on, on managing their reputational risk. If you haven't guessed where I'm going with this already, considering this is a leadership podcast, I thought it might be timely to talk about how leaders' reputation can impact an organisation as a whole uh, and how damage to that reputation impacts the leader's ability to do their job and, in fact, go forward with it. Uh, just a few days ago in the UK, uh, a few days before recording, uh, our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson uh, survived a vote of confidence in among his party in the House of Commons, survived being in inverted commas, given the, the narrowness of the vote. Um, so I thought that, you know, let's have a look at this whole we're not going to dig into party gate per se, although we might touch on, on, on areas around it. Um, but the lessons we can learn from it for leaders uh, and how you can manage that reputational risk and not find yourself in a similar position. Uh, I think that frames it quite nicely, doesn't it, Alan? Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. What a, what a, what a kind introduction. How very, and we are long standing friends. It's lovely to talk to you. Um, we talk on a regular basis, of course. We do, we do. And, you know, you've you've been on my list of, of 
uh, guests for the podcast for a while. There was one that we wanted to get you on with a couple of other people, but scheduling didn't allow it. And so when this came up, I thought now, now is the time. Now, now the is time. the time. Um, it, 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 what's, the, what's the phrase? If if the um, if the servant waits, the master shall appear, or something like that. And something maybe like this that. is the uh, <laughs> the case. Something like that. Okay, so so let's dig into this this hmm. this topical topic. Um, given the recent vote of confidence uh, in, in Boris Johnson. Um, I, I don't want to make this a political piece. You and I both know each other's politics uh, and yes. you're you're very adept at being neutral in the right cases. So we're not going to talk about the, the rights and wrongs of Partygate no. per se. I, I want to focus in on what we can learn from it. Um, there is... Um, there is a strong feeling in the country if we can take party politics out of it. And I know it's very difficult with this question, but there are many people that feel the government uh, as a whole has been brought into disrepute by mm-hmm. uh, what what went on at 10 Downing Street. Um, is that fair comment? And, and how well have the prime minister, his team and the government as a whole, as a whole handled the story surrounding Partygate? Okay, well, how long have you got, Andy? I know how long we've got, so <laughs> I'll, I'll keep this brief. I mean, yes, it, it is true to say, as, as you say, that the, the, there is an element in which the, the government has uh, fallen into disrepute, has, has certainly been viewed so, and, and we're in the fortunate position of having regular opinion polls. You know, we can see that the, that the ratings of various political leaders, including Boris Johnson, have fallen, uh, and ratings of others rise and fall all the time. So you've got a regular metre, of how you're doing, which is something that a lot of us don't have, you know, to relate it to people outside. We don't have a regular way of telling what our reputation is doing, whether it's going up and down. We might talk about that a bit later on. In terms of, of how they've handled it, I think, you know, you and I both know this all comes down to communication, how you communicate something and how that communication is perceived. And I think the issue here is that it wasn't communicated early enough. You know, one of the basic rules of crisis management is to come out as early as possible with your hands up, admit anything that happened, apologize for it, and then explain how you're going to fix it. And to make yourself the the center of any information about that. And what, what happens, of course, if you don't do that, you get all sorts of speculation. You get rumors. You get um, people who claim they were there or claim they knew somebody who was there who says, I know what went on and so on. And the rumors build. Uh, and we have a uh, a rumour expansion device called social media, which as soon as something appears, somebody else can speculate on it. They can add something to it. And, you know, it's, 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 we're not allowed to call... They used to be called something whispers because of, you know, we don't call them that anymore. But we call them rumours that, that expand and change. And I think the bad handling, I think, is it, it's, it's something that happens, I see, over and over and over and over again with any crisis. You didn't get the information out early enough and you weren't honest enough at the start. And how would that compare to, you know, let's let's introduce some balance into this, if you like. Mm. How would that compare to how Labour have handled their own uh, beer gate scandal? And, and I'm, I, I'm very conscious that we've got people who listen to this, not not in the UK, mm. uh, who might be aware of Partygate, because I'm sure that's global news, less so Beergate, where uh, the leader of the Labour Party, who's been leading the attack naturally on, on Boris Johnson, uh, was photographed at a window at an election uh, in a Labour Party local office during an election uh, with, a, with a bottle of beer in his hand. But things have come out subsequently about that, um, that that have thrown question marks onto it. So how would you compare how the, the, the government communicated and how the opposition communicated in those two cases? 
I think, as we say in the business, it's a six and two threes. Uh, they <laughs> both not handled it very well at all. Um, yeah. And the fact that you know the, the the Labour Party central office denied the fact that the deputy leader Angela Rayner was there, and it turned out she yeah. was there, and that was an appalling piece of communication. They should have just asked her, "Were you there or not?" Rather than saying, "No, she definitely wasn't," because that makes them look bad. So again, it comes down to communication. Although we have to say, at the time of recording, that the the Labour Party and Labour leaders haven't been found guilty of anything. They haven't no. had a fixed yeah, penalty notice. They haven't had a fine, and, and the whole thing is still under investigation. So it's all it's all speculation. But we're not really talking about whether they found they did something or not. How did they communicate it? And I would say equally as badly, um, because it 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 looks as though things are being hidden. It looks as though things are not clear. Bear in mind. You and I are talking about laws that just got made up. You know, <laughs> yeah. for the two years that we had COVID, it wasn't an offence to sit in a room with a bunch of people having a beer. You know, that was okay. Uh, We've been doing it for years. All of a sudden, it now becomes against the law. I think it's kind of tricky for all of us how we handle that. Well, I think part of the the, the the issue of Partygate is that the people that broke the law are the people that wrote the law, uh, yes, and that's that is that is a specific issue yeah. for them. That you can't you yeah. can't make the rules and break the rules, as they say. <laughs> well, well, let's dig into this issue of communication uh, a, a little bit more. In just ask, uh, I wrote a chapter uh, asking whether we allow our politicians to be vulnerable, mm. uh, and I think there there is a real question about whether we have an environment. Uh, that allows politicians to put their hands up and say, I got it wrong, and then move on from that. Uh, now, now, part of a, a result of that environment, a result of that culture, is they'll try to spin the message any other way they can. Uh, yeah. And I know that, that, that media coaches like yourself will talk about bridging, which politicians are great at. You ask yeah. them one question and they'll say, well, what you really meant to ask me was this and answer something yeah. completely different. Um some of the messages um, that seem to be repeated religiously uh, by supporters of, of the Prime Minister and, and his team um, seem to me to, to, to fit that category. Um, you talked about opinion polls. One of the things we constantly hear from Conservative MPs backing Boris Johnson is people in the country aren't interested in this. It's a Westminster bubble thing. Um, I'm not convinced that's the case, and I'm not no. sure the, the booing of the Prime Minister at, at, at the Jubilee uh, suggests that. Um, we're told um, that this is a minor issue and people don't really care about parties. Again, it's a similar thing. So I know you talk a lot about managing the message and getting mm -hmm. the right message out there. But the, the communication's gone wrong here, isn't it? Because they've chosen that advice, but they're not they're not reading the room and recognising that the message they're picking isn't resonating no, not. with people. No, they're not. And you've asked a really good question, Andy. But before I answer that, let me say this. Mm. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but that, but that's, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Because... People are told that, and you're right. I do. I do help people to deliver a message, and I always say to people that a media interview is an opportunity to deliver a message, uh, not just answer questions. But you've got to get back to the question. I mean, bridging. They're actually you've got to go both ways across the bridge. So when you deliver a bridge, as I just did, yeah. You know, before I answer that, let me say this. Now let me come back to the question you asked. So you know the really skillful way of bridging is to. Take the question, bridge to the message you want to deliver, and then bridge back. And by bridging back, you do address the question. The thing that annoys people most of all about politicians, in my experience, is they don't answer the question. And I, yeah. you know, people like me get the blame for that. 
because they haven't bridged back. You've got you've got to acknowledge the question. You've got to respond to it. And in fact, the the easiest way is to just deliver an answer to the question. You know, I, you know, I, are you thinking of you know, creating a new northern powerhouse? Yes. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you very much, Prime Minister. <laughs> Rather than saying, well, in the fullness of time, we're going to look at the various ways in which we can connect these parts yeah. of the north of England. But you know, and people, it's not difficult to extract the essence from what you're trying to do. But po- I think what's happened with politicians and with people in the media generally is that they've become used to using a thousand words when ten would do. <laughs> and that's a very succinct answer uh, on on that very point. Well, well, Staying on this theme of, of of the government's message, what I've noticed in the last week uh, leading up to when we're having this conversation is that the tactics post vote of confidence seems to have shifted. Mm-hmm. They've constantly said, let's focus on, on the cost of living and, uh, and what's happening in the country. And now we're seeing, uh, I think, a different policy initiative every week. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, and, and without digging into the rights and the wrongs and, and so forth of those policy initiatives, but they're talking about housing. Um, they're talking, uh, they'll be talking about the health service. They'll be talking about mm-hmm. education, I'm sure. And there'll be a different one every week. It's almost like an election footing uh, super early. Is that? Um, do you think that's likely to be a successful strategy? No. <laughs> I will elaborate <laughs> okay. on that. Though. Yeah, please, please do. It's, that was it's a very old, succinct answer. It's the old dead cat, as they say. Look, oh look, yeah. there's a dead cat on the table. It's uh, that's interesting. So, and what classically, if you're if you're trying to avoid a topic, you introduce another topic that's more interesting. It's a classic news trope to to try and derail a story by producing another story that's more interesting. It happens all the time uh, in the media. But the problem is, if the initial thing is so big that it won't go away, then anything that you do introduce is seen as a distraction. Uh, you know, whether it's whether it's sending illegal immigrants to Rwanda or, or getting people to pay for housing with their housing benefit or whatever it is, it's, they're all attempts to distract. And, and once people lock into that, you're trying to distract us from that, it actually makes the initial issue worse because people keep coming back. Oh, here's another distraction. We should be talking about that. If they dealt with the that in the first place correctly, you wouldn't have to distract. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. Right. So so we're in a position where you're saying they, they didn't deal with it. They didn't handle it the right way initially. They didn't communicate what really happened and take ownership of it. We're now in a position where the prime minister has been fined by the police, uh, mm-hmm. where the there's been a vote of confidence. We have uh, still potentially a House of Commons Select Committee it, um, looking at whether the, the prime minister will willing willfully uh, misled the house which could yeah. lead to a suspension from the house of commons which mm-hmm. um, to my knowledge is unprecedented for a cabinet minister let alone a prime it minister yes, um uh, and there may be more coming out mm. what could they do differently now given the situation we're in and everything they should have done has gone mm. what would you do if you were brought in tomorrow to advise them firstly i wouldn't <laughs> <took far> down <laughs> the road. But you've yeah. okay. It's a fair question, so I, I, I will I will take it on. 
I think there are several things that you can do. I mean, it's never too late to repent. Uh, it's never too late to say, yes, we made a dreadful mistake or we should have communicated that better or something like that, and, and to admit that you've got something wrong. There have been no end of scandals in the past where people have eventually come out and said, yes, I did it. Uh, I was an idiot. And you can, you can you can find a way back. It's a long way back, mind. You might have to you know take a long time to get back. Another tactic is to bring your enemies inside the tent. Um, there are lots. There's lots of criticism in his own party, um, and, and unfortunately, he surrounded himself with people who are well. They're not all on his side. Some of them do have their hands behind their backs with weapons in, uh, because they're just waiting for their moment. And we can we won't need to speculate who they are, but it's pretty obvious who they are. But what I would I would be doing I'd be doing those two things. I'd be saying, look, we did get it wrong. You know, we we got it absolutely wrong, and we want to address that now. We want to talk about, and invite, actually invite interviews. Uh, if I was in the Prime Minister position, I'd be looking to go on major political interviews and talk about this sort of thing and say, ask me anything you want to. I want to address this issue directly right now. That's one way back. It's what Rather than what hiding in a fridge. Yeah, it's what Nixon tried to do in Watergate. It didn't work for him. Yeah. But at least no. he tried it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but also, as I say, bring your enemies inside the tent. Let you know, Find out who are the big critics in his own party and say, well, how... You know, you're still, they're still in the same party, I believe. <laughs> what can we do to try and bring the party together? I know that's, it's a bit partly political, but it would apply to any party that did it. I, w- I would do the same if I was in the Labour Party too, if I was Keir Starmer or Angela Rayner. I'd say, okay, we're getting a lot of criticism. What would you do? Come and let's, let's, let's sort this out and try and bring some unity to their own side at least, which is lacking at the moment. It's it's really interesting you say that because I, I've just finished reading uh, a, an excellent book called Chums by Simon mm. Cooper, and Simon's going to come onto the podcast in a couple of months. Um, but it explores the impact of uh, op- the Oxford Union, particularly, but this group yeah. of of conservatives and and some senior Labour politicians that clustered around Oxford in the, in the mid to late eighties, yeah. uh, and where that's gone. And one of the things I took from that book is that one of the tactics within the union is to surround yourselves with yes men and people that don't mm. uh, challenge you. And you could argue that. Um, Boris Johnson has skillfully protected himself. He's promoted people uh, who will remain loyal to him generally within the cabinet, um, reducing the risk of damaging resignations and conflict in the senior team. You compare that to Michael Heseltine being in Margaret Thatcher's uh, mm-hmm. cabinet, for example. There's no obvious successor uh, yeah. at those senior levels. Um Rory Stewart, in his podcast with Alistair Campbell a couple of weeks ago, um, talked about how Boris Johnson doesn't welcome dissenting voices around him. And, and, no. and he found that once you challenged him, you know, if you challenged him once, he'd laugh it off. If you challenged him twice, he'd get a bit surly. And if you challenged him mm. three times on the same thing, you wouldn't be welcomed back inside in, inside the room. Um, so you're, you're effectively saying, I, I would argue that has protected him um, yeah. at the yeah. moment um, if we sort of start moving towards our listeners and what they can take away from this mm. you know how do you get that balance right between creating a leadership team around you where you have strong levels of trust in place uh, and promoting dissenting ideas and people listen regularly know that I'm a big fan of that um, mm. promoting people who are going to challenge you and, and you know arguably make you better and sharpen you up well, I think you've, you've got to, yeah, like all leaders, you, you know this better than I do. You, you talk about leadership a lot. You've got to lead by example. You've got, to, you've got to do what you say you're going to do. And I think the 
The problem with many politicians, not just Boris Johnson, is that they say one thing and do another, but very obviously say one thing and do another. You, you've got to be demonstrating that how you behave is how you advise others to behave. This is the big problem. That's the big dissonance that we find and, and, and reasons why. So as you know, a leader in any, in any organization, in any industry, in any business has to really understand what they're what their well, just what their followers, they're not necessarily followers. What leaders and followers, I suppose, go naturally together, but they're really the people with whom they work, the teams with whom they work. They have to understand that. Obviously, it's part of building a team. We talked about surrounding yourself with yes people and and so on. But I think you've got to demonstrate and value and praise ideas that are not yours and may in fact conflict with yours, and say, well, that's a, there may be a reason why you can't do it. Maybe a reason why somebody comes up with an idea that that doesn't match what you would do, and you say, "Well, it is a good idea, and if if we had this, we'd do that, or, or we can't do it for this reason." You've got to acknowledge it, and in fact, I, I honestly think you should encourage it. And I, I I think you you know you've talked about this yourself. You should encourage challenge. You should encourage positive criticism, if you like, so that somebody doesn't feel afraid to say to you. I bet people in Boris's cabinet feel terrified to say anything critical to him. Because, you know, as you say, he, he doesn't, you know, he, ah, I don't, I don't want to listen, don't want to listen. He doesn't hear it, doesn't want to hear it. So I think a leader has to encourage that. They have to acknowledge it. They may, they may decide to use it. And if they don't, they have to give a very good reason why they won't. And that, that's all about dialogue and communication, which is the business we're in. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. Uh, in, from from whether it's from a political perspective or a business perspective or any other environment, which leaders have you seen do this really well? Where they're putting others into the spotlight, where they're taking on advice that um, that counters what they're saying, but they embrace it. Barack Obama, no question. Uh, listening to some of his speeches when he was uh, U.S. president and since some of the speeches he's given. Um, since he left the White House, he's very, very good at giving praise to people who come up with ideas that are not his uh, and giving credit to people and saying, well, I, I met these people at the White House and they came up with this. It never occurred to us. And I thought, what a great idea that is. And we put a department together to do it. And I think he, uh, above many public figures that I've seen recently, was very, very good at both acknowledging people uh, and introducing their ideas into his administration. And I think that's a, it's, it's a very strong leadership trait to be able to do that. Uh, in this country, we don't appear to have many people that are very good at that. Uh, and that's, that's a regret, unfortunately. But because we, we seem to have flipped back, either politically or, or outside politics, to a more like the command and control style of leadership, which we all thought had been consigned to the bin but sadly has, has returned. But I hope, but lots of people in business don't use that as an example. Lots of people in business are very, very collaborative. So uh, there is hope. Well, I mean, you, 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 you helped me in putting together my new talk on vulnerable leadership, and, and that's talk. very much, uh, mm. that's very much about let's, let's move away from command and control and let's move yes. into a more collaborative style, vulnerable style of leadership where we do... Um, we one of the phrases that I've developed through delivering that talk is we lead from among, uh, mm. rather than lead from above, uh, mm. or or in front of people, which which is key. Um, mm. and, and one of the arguments that I make in that talk uh, is that culturally 
we're probably uh, reinforcing the command and control style through the way we represent business in popular culture. So if you look at the yeah. television shows in the UK, and I think the US, as an example, would probably mirror this, mm -hmm. The Apprentice is, <laughs> is all about diminishing people, making yes. them look small. Uh, Dragon's Den mm. is, is very much the same. And I feel that our popular television programs do business a huge disservice from that perspective. Oh, uh, and you 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 comment a lot on TV shows mm. um, in in your newsletter, your excellent media coach newsletter, and elsewhere. Um, where have you seen any that are, 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 are taking a different approach and a more modern approach to how they um, how they present business, or is this is this in everything that you see that it's about um, the boss and the uh, and the lackeys and the boss making the lackeys look small the whole time. I don't answer your question. No, I haven't seen any shows that represent business in a more um, modern and perhaps a socially acceptable fashion because business, they're not business shows, they're game shows really. Um, and, and game shows have these three elements of jeopardy, uh, which is a race against time, conflict and elimination. And provided you've got those three elements, which occur, they occur in The Apprentice. To an extent, they're in Dragon's Den. You either get the money or you don't. You either get ridiculed or you don't. That, that's what um, commissioning editors are looking for. They're looking for jeopardy and conflict because that's drama. You know, if you go, if you go and see a film or you go and see a play, drama is about conflict. It's about, it's about jeopardy. And therefore, those elements are built in. They're baked in to the business shows on television, which are not really about business at all. I mean, we, we do have shows about business where, for example, people go inside a factory and see how it works and so on, but they don't have a very big audience. The big audiences are for the ones where uh, Alan Sugar points at someone and says, you're fired. You know, that, because that's, that is the ultimate conflict, and that's, that's what the viewers want to watch. So it's not about business at all. It's, about, it's a game show. They're all game uh, shows. Do you think it's having an impact on how people do lead and how they see leadership. Because if you think about it, The Apprentice, Dragon's Den have been with us for a generation now. So you have a generation in the workforce who would maybe started working, watching it when they were junior in the workforce now in positions of leadership. What sort of impact do you think they're having? I, I don't think they have much impact at all, Andy. I really don't. I, th I think they're seen almost as almost as relics, you know, dinosaurs rather than, should we call dinosaurs den, not dragons den? <laughs> because they're, they're, I think a lot of people, um, you, know, you know, as you know, a 25-year-old daughter who's, who's working in the film industry and, and the, indus the businesses that she's worked in and the businesses that she works with are absolutely collaborative and the leaders work with the, the people in the organisation and they're, and they're brilliant at that. And I've, I've seen many, many other examples of that. So I don't think they're having any impact at all. I think they're reflecting a bygone age. Uh, and I think they're providing a form of entertainment, not a form of education. Okay, and, and, and if that's the case, that's that's fair enough. But we still have mm. this issue where politicians can't be seen to be vulnerable. We've got leaders that, that no, still you're right there, command and control. Um, where it's coming from, maybe it's, it's more deeply rooted um, uh, within our culture, and I'm too quick to blame. Uh, television shows, which which may well be the case, he says vulnerably, and being open to challenge. I I, I would say, yeah, and I, I I my view, I'll just reinstate that. It, the the TV shows about business are designed by commissioning editors on television. Mm. They're not designed by business people, and they they serve a different purpose. Um, I'm very hopeful, actually, that that business leaders can. They don't take a lead from that. They they do 
genuinely deliver a collaborative service. That's not to say that our work is done here. You know, there's still a lot of people who are using those old-fashioned command and control type methods, and therefore, you know, it's it's a slow change. But I think I'm I'm pretty convinced there are some good enlightened businesses out there. And do you think that? And it sort of ties together a lot of what we've talked about. How much do you think the this command and control style, the um, the unwillingness to face challenge, the uh, surrounding yourself with people who are yes men and, and yes women, uh, and so forth? How much do you think that led to the culture that that led to Partygate and all of the the issues ever since in the way it was handled? I think it was a very strong factor, uh, and I think it was probably the major factor in leading to that, the, the fact that people people in politics develop an idea that they're quite important. you know, And in some cases they are, but in most cases we kind of get by without politicians actually. And I, I think what, but what's happened is to, to move up through the ranks in a political party, it's not quite house of cards, but you, you've got to be pretty tough to keep going, you know, particularly for people who might be in vulnerable groups. It used to be for women, it might be for LGBT these days. It's, it's not easy to move up through the ranks in a political party if if you're not you know tough we'll fire those we'll do that we'll be decisive and all those sorts of things uh, whereas in fact most of these people have very little power at all they probably have less power than you and I do sometimes yeah. but they but the culture it's so it's the culture within the political parties i think that's that's having the impact rather than you know a general thing in society and they're a really dreadful example to it it's a real shame so you know there'll be people listening to this who might be thinking this this there are useful things here in terms of putting my senior team together and a more inclusive culture but going back to partygate and the way it's been handled i'm not in the public eye i've got a few people in my business that that are looking to me what can can leaders and aspiring leaders in in large businesses uh, really take from the way this has all, all been handled I think there are a couple of things. I think one thing is if, if you just think about how crises occur, you know, what, what happens to cause a crisis? And there's been a lot of work done on this by the uh, American Society of Public Relations. They do, they do surveys on this regularly, and they found that between 70 and 75% of crises are predictable. Only, only about 25% are sudden impact crises. So in other words, in three quarters of the cases, you can see these things coming. <laughs> You know there's something building. People in the organisation know. So what what can people do about that? They can keep in touch with the people on the front line. They can keep an eye on the people who know what their customers and clients think and make sure they get that feedback. And if they see a groundswell, if they see something moving in a direction, they can stop it there and then. Most crises are avoidable. Most problems are avoidable. But people don't have systems in place to spot the warning signs. And I think that that's one of the most important things when I'm working with business. I say, look, you have to know what's happening. You have to know the people on the ground. You have to talk to them and understand what they say. So it, it is, again, it's a shift from command and control. And, and to the point of, of this podcast series, it's about the relationships you have, not just with your senior leadership team, um, but with people at all levels. Um, so are, are, are there leaders that you've worked with that do this particularly well and are really tuned in uh, to to what the people on the ground are thinking, saying, doing, uh, and how are they how are they finding the time to do that effectively? Yeah, I'm going to drop a name. I don't know if it is dropping a name, but it's a, it's a businessman called Ricardo Semler. Um, and Ricardo Semler uh, wrote a book called Maverick. Uh, he ran a company called Semco in Brazil. I worked with him initially. Uh, I was um, 
emceeing a conference. It sounds a bit flashy. It was in a, in a big hotel in Dubai. Uh, and we got to know each other. We've kept in touch ever since. He now lectures on the on the Harvard MBA program. And what he did was he, <laughs> he put a bit of a drastic thing. He sacked all his middle managers. Um, <laughs> he had a kind of epiphany. Uh, he took over a, a white goods company called Semco from his father. And uh, the strain of running it nearly killed him. He ended up in hospital with a heart attack. And he had a kind of epiphany in hospital. And he thought, why do I need all these people? Because all they do is have Monday morning meetings and talk to each other about something inconsequential. And the people on the f- factory floor, the people on the production lines know what's going on. And he completely flipped his company. And he spent more and more time with the, with all of the people in the organization. He actually took out the whole human resources department, incidentally, as well, which maybe not everybody wants to do. Um, but he talked to the people on the ground. Like, where do, Where's the best place to build a new factory, for example? He was going to spend $5 million on consultants to find a new site for a factory. Instead, he spent a day on the production line. And the guy said, well, you've got over here, you've got the minerals, you've got the transportation links, you've got a pool of, of employees or potential employees with the skills, build it there. And I went, oh, thank you very much. You just saved me $5 million. So in my view, Ricardo Semler is the best possible example of somebody who takes notice of what everybody in the company said. Excellent, excellent. Okay, a couple of last questions just to, to, to finish off, a bit more, bit more general. Um, the... the I know that you do a lot of work in terms of advising companies on how to use social media and particularly manage reputation on on Mm -hmm. social media uh, especially. Um, A lot of the people that I work with in in my corporate clients are particularly uh, Mm risk-averse when it comes to what they share on social media. I've just been doing an audit ahead of a session that I'm running tomorrow, and as with most of these, this is an audit of the individual LinkedIn accounts of the people I'm working with. They tend to share their their company's promotional posts, and that is it. Yeah. Uh, and that's very common. Uh, from your perspective, how much? Well, I guess it's two parts to the question. From a reputational perspective, how much should leaders share on a professional uh, platform stuff about themselves uh, and mm-hmm. and their own lives? And from a reputational perspective, you know, how could a bad post impact their organisation? Uh, and then the second part of it is, is there a benefit that you see um, from moving away from talking about the products and the services uh, and what's happening in the company and talking more about yourself as an individual? Uh, yes, to the last one, and I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. A um, num- number of people spring to mind. Um, Scott Monty, who used to be uh, the social media manager for Ford uh, in the US, used to share about his his life at home, his family um, his trips, and as well as talking about Ford. People people loved Scott, and they started to love Ford as a result of that. I'll come back to the bad post in a minute. Uh, another example would be um, Canute Wilde, who's the GM of the Berkeley Hotel in London. Uh, used to work at the Dorchester, which is where I met him. And he, again, he shares a lot of what's going on. He shares what's going on in the hotel. You know, we've got a new chef. Here's a picture of the new dishes. Puts it out on Insta, that sort of thing. Or we've got a, spe- a sculptor has come in and, and put some stuff in the lobby. Uh, but he also talks about his trips when he's met up with colleagues. Um, you know what's happened. Praises other hotels. You know they're doing a great job at this particular hotel. You know we could all learn a lot from that. And I think that sort of thing, that sort of, I'm not just talking about my company post, and I'm not just talking about my work. It's very endearing. It really is. You know, in, in both cases of, of, of Scott and Canute and many other people that I know, I think as you know, I do the same thing. 
you know, I, and I think you do too. You know, we <laughs> we talk about going to the cricket or going to a gig, and it's the same social media as, as when we're talking about our, our business. I think people like that. I think people do. However, coming to the bad side of it, what happens if you share something that that you probably shouldn't do? Well, first thing is don't share it in the first place, obviously. But the second thing is you've got to have some sort of recovery process. I I often say to people. If you're going to get into an argument on social media, and it, that's one of the easiest things on the world is to get into an argument on social media. As you know, you post something and wait, and that's how you yeah. start an argument. <laughs> so what, what people can do is I, I, I operate a, a three strikes rule. So once I've had three call and response with somebody on a post, I stop. I, I, can't, I can't take it any further. That's, that's if I'm having a debate. And if it comes down to posting something, if I'm really annoyed about something or I'm really irritated, well, firstly, I don't post it. But if I'm really, really annoyed, I write the post and I leave it for half an hour. And I come back to it and I think, ah, can't be bothered. <laughs> can't be bothered. I've now got it out of my system. So, in other words, when it comes to those sorts of things, don't complain. Um, and if you do complain, don't post until you've had a cooling off period. But I, I, I see nothing at all wrong with sharing what you do in life as well as what you do in your business yeah and, and i've done the same uh, as you uh, you know i i think not so much on the professional platforms or the, those perceived to mm. be because i think there's gray areas for all of them yes. but the more professional platforms like linkedin i've had a couple of people post very strange things on my co added to my comments or or, or mm. to my posts i i've either ignored them or in one where i needed to i've very professionally drawn attention to where they were mistaken um yes. and yeah but in a very professional non-accusatory um dry way uh, if you like not 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 likely to ignite anything and they didn't come back at all they didn't own it at all right um right. On, on facebook in the past i've got sucked into arguments I shouldn't have done. And now I'll do what you do. I type it out and yeah. then I delete it. Uh, and it does, it gets it out of your system and you can move on. I think when you do post, it, it, it's not just damaging to your reputation, it's damaging to yourself because okay. you're then in, in a state of agitation waiting to see yeah. their response and, you know, creating their response in your mind to mm. the point you're, you're almost having a fight with your imagination while you mm. wait for, to see what they say. Um, and I have done that. And then when they have finally responded, it's been to apologise. And that's really sort of <laughs> burst my balloon. I've ended up having yeah. a massive fight with my imagination. And meanwhile, yeah. they've just come on and said, you're right, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I think it is good to sometimes just, just move away from that very quickly. Um, uh, okay, so we, we've addressed this to, to, to a degree in terms of how you suggested that the, the government should deal with party gate from now you know you, you talked about from the very beginning communication being key get out in front of it even at this late stage put your hands mm -hmm. up and, and, and say we were wrong um and then take the long game building back um would you say it's the same from an organization's perspective and if if there are risks to that organization's reputation what are sort of the top three things uh someone should be doing particularly if it's a if it's to do with something that leader has said or done what are the okay. three key things they have to do to get out in front of it and diffuse it i think one of the, probably the first thing would be to make sure everybody in the organization is aware of that and aware of any potential response to that because you don't want your own people hearing rumors about what a leader may have said or what a member of the board may have said 
And then they perhaps start to speculate on that or say they didn't like it and so on. So internal communication is the first part of the process. You've got to make sure that everybody within the organization knows what's going on, knows why it happened, and knows what the reaction will be. Second thing is speed. Speed is absolutely of the essence. The quicker you can respond to something, the better it is. Even if it's something that you don't you don't know the cause, you don't know the, the provenance of it, but you can say, yes, this has definitely occurred. We can confirm that something has happened. We're looking into it. We'll respond as soon as we possibly can. So internal communication, speed, and then honesty. Honesty. You don't have to tell all the truth all the time. You don't have to tell everybody everything. You don't have to be totally transparent, but everything you say has to be true. And that's everything. Uh, I mean, I've, I have been approached by people, including some politicians, saying, I've got this kind of skeleton in the cupboard. I don't really want to reveal it, but I want to say something. I said, well, don't come to me then. Because <laughs> all I'm going to do is to help you present your truth in the best possible way. Yeah. So I think it's about yeah, internal comms, speed, and honesty. And I think that the, the, the honesty is just a great trait to have in whatever you do, whether you're building relationships, building reputation, whatever it might be, um, as soon as you start trying to tell partial truths or hide elements here or there, you're creating traps for yourself going forward, aren't you? You are. Everybody forgives a mistake. Hey, we're all human. We're all going to get things wrong from time to time. I, I'm going to admit now that I forgot the initial time of this podcast. <laughs> I'm recording it two hours later than we should have done. Um, so, but I apologise and we're okay. So we, we're, we're all, we all make mistakes, but if we hold our hand up as quickly as possible and say, oh, I got it wrong, I'm so sorry, I got it wrong, then you can pick it up and carry on from there. What kills you is the cover-up. Every time, what, what, what does for politicians and people in business is an attempt to cover it up and then it comes out and then people think much the worse of you. Well, Alan, I don't think we've covered anything up today. Um, so thank you very much for joining me and, and shedding uh, a, a different perspective, a different light on this topic. Hopefully we can move past it fairly quickly, whichever way you want it resolved. <laughs> we won't get into that. Um, and it's been great, finally, to get you on the Connected Leadership It's podcast. been an absolute pleasure, Andy. I'm really grateful. And can I just say to people, if anybody hasn't bought Just Ask, they should. It is the most fabulous book. So well done to you. Thank you. That's very kind, Alan. Thank you so much to Alan for joining me. It, it, he's a guest, as I said, that um, was was on my list from the very beginning. And I know I've said that before, <clears throat> but, you know, you have to have the right topic. And I felt this was for Alan. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to get that balance right. I don't, this isn't a political podcast. Uh, it is about relationships. Um, but I felt that there, there was something around relationships in that story. And I think that came out from the conversation that Alan and I had. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please, as I always ask, if you can uh, leave ratings, reviews on the podcast channel you listen on uh, and uh, share it on social media, perhaps tell people to listen. That would be appreciated. It will help to grow the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. And I'll see you again soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.